Okay, if you've been joining us, our campaign is called The Irresistible Gospel. And in this campaign, we're talking through why the gospel is just so good. How this story of the gospel that we participate in as believers in Christ is just so, so good. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, we keep saying that, I keep saying, I guess, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I hope you have. Um, that whether you're a Christian or not, this story is so good that you should want it to be true. That it's just so, so good. And it satisfies all of our deepest longings. It answers our biggest questions. So we've been asking the big questions of um, origin. Where did it all come from? How the gospel answers that question. Meaning. What is the meaning of life? These big questions that we all have. And we need to have a working definition or answer to in order to live a satisfied life. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you got to have a definition that's at least workable for your life, right? And then uh, we talked about morality, how ought we live, and God's response to our violations of the moral law. And today we're talking about destiny. Where is it all headed? What's the end look like? Sometimes, especially <laughs> when we're in stressful times or in difficult times in life, it's good to know the end of the story. Um, we, my wife and I, we were watching a movie. This was when we were newlyweds. Um, and the movie was an excellent movie. It was a great movie. Like, it really did a good job of drawing us into the characters to where like partway through the movie, we just like identified with the characters. We felt what they were feeling and we love, like we wanted this to end well. And so partway through the movie is really stressful moment and it didn't seem like it was going to end well. It could have gone one of two ways. It was like the, the climactic moment of the movie. And uh, Savannah, she just paused it and she's like, I can't go on anymore unless I know this is a good ending. She's like, I'm too emotionally invested. Oh, some other folks do that? Okay. It was wild. I, was, I didn't know this about her before. Um, because I like to just like, I go along for the ride. And I'm like, if it ends sad, I'll be sad for a while. If it ends great, I'll be happy. Whatever. Um, she's much more like, I need to know the end of the story or else I'm not investing the hour in this, basically, if it ends uh, in a sad way. So she kicked me out. I went upstairs. And... Uh, and she watched the end of it. And when I came back down, she was crying <laughs> and like happy tears. So it was that good. And we watched the end of it. And it was a wonderful story. She did that to me in another like show that we loved watching together. She's like, I can't, I can't go on anymore until I know that this is a good ending and they wrap it up well. The problem with that was it's like the show went on for years. And so like I haven't watched it for years. And we, whatever. But it ended well. And we'll pick it up at some point. Maybe. I don't know. We've probably forgotten about it and just like it's not important, right? So, but it's good to know the end of the story sometimes, especially when you're in stressful moments, intense moments, or relational conflict or tension, or you're looking out like, how, how can this possibly end well? And the Christian virtue associated with that is hope. <laughs> that when we know the end of the story, we can have hope, even when all of, us, all of the circumstances around us feel hopeless. So as we've been doing in this campaign, in order to present how irresistible the gospel picture is of our destiny, we've got to look at some alternatives. It's not enough to just walk away from Christianity. Uh, you have to have an answer to this question of where is it all headed? And here are some of the other answers that we have available to us in our culture. And then we'll talk about how the gospel is just way better, that these stink compared to the gospel, all right? One is a secular utopia. <clears throat> Secular utopia. Secular just meaning like without spirituality, without God, right? And lots of Christians, even, who 
theoretically believe in the gospel, of the, the gospel's vision of new creation, functionally hold to a secular utopia. <laughs> they live as if the new creation, the utopian vision that we long for is dependent on us. In this vision of new creation and hope or utopian dream, whatever, we usually end up putting our hope in a couple of different things. One is science. Uh, we don't hear this as often. It's still out there in some popular places. But the idea is that advancements in technology will eventually make life so easy for us that we'll live in this utopian dream, right? Maybe AI. Like <laughs> This will be it. This will finally be it for us. And then we can live in a utopian vision. That's not as common today. But more commonly, people who live in a secular utopian vision of our destiny as humans um, put all of their hope in politics and social programs. Uh, advancing one's definition of justice and good through political uh, parties, through social programs, becomes the roots of hope for us. And it's not surprising that as Christian influence is waning in our culture, folks are turning to politics and social programs to accomplish this utopian vision. Because every political party presents to us a vision of utopia, a means to accomplish it, and even a community to accomplish it with. Uh, that's why sociologists are finding that it is beginning to map like a religion in people's minds. People are putting their identity in their political party, in their political ideologies. And then when you challenge a political idea, you're not just challenging then an idea, you're challenging their identity. You're challenging their utopian vision, their hope. You're challenging who they think they are and what they think, or at least their hope in the possibilities of a utopian future. So those are deep-seated things. And we see that often, and now we're seeing it playing out with more political polarization and anger. And even in the church, again, political idolatry, where people are putting their hope more in a secular utopian vision through their political party than they are in the hope of the gospel. So that's the positive version of secularism. The negative version is a secular dystopia. This is common as well. Uh, people who look at the world and people and say, there's not a lot of hope here. <laughs> right? People are messed up, societies are messed up, governments are messed up. So this secular utopia, you put your hope in governments or in technology, like actually it's going to go the other way. <laughs> and so their hope is essentially to like hold it off as long as possible before it happens, which is kind of bleak and sad, right? They'll often point to things like, well, overpopulation, resource depletion is going to cause this dystopia. I think Thanos and his planet, and he tried to prevent it, but caused worse, you know, it, what's going on, right? That's, that's, what's hap that's what happens when this is what your hope is in. Pandemic, another health crisis, uh, common refrain that we heard in the COVID years. Um, I think I am legend. And I was struck as I was thinking of movies that present these ideas. Like, we have a lot of movies that talk about dystopian visions. Uh, and how many of them Will Smith is in? It's wild. <laughs> He has a knack for these kind of movies. I don't know. So yeah, I think I Am Legend, think Walking Dead, those types of shows. 
this dystopian vision, technology is going to take over is another idea. Maybe AI will rule the world someday. Think like iRobot or the Matrix. Maybe we're all plugged in, right? Uh, did we check? Uh, <laughs> now, I say these jokingly, right? But don't, don't discount. I think, I think we have for a long time discounted the formational power of media over us. Um, and I was struck with that when I thought of The Matrix, right? Because The Matrix ties into our next one as well. Um, movies like that have a lot of power to influence us. And subtly, over time, we begin to adopt these ideologies. So I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, but don't, don't discount the power of media to form us. And then fifth, the last one that we often hear is like an alien takeover. This is my favorite one. Um, and again, not on Will Smith's watch, right? Uh, think Men in Black, think Independence Day. Like this dude, oh. <laughs> it's dystopian vision. That's not very hopeful, but sadly a lot of folks are there. Next is spiritual enlightenment. Okay, uh, this is growing in popularity in our culture. I don't know that it's reached Burlington <laughs> very strongly yet, but it's, it's here. I've had a few conversations with folks who have their hope in the spiritual enlightenment ideology. Uh, so for those who tend to borrow ideas from different religions and blend them into what I think is an incoherent cocktail of religious ideas um, and practices that they like, they borrow ideas from Christianity. Um, commonly, they'll borrow ideas from Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, other Eastern religions that they just find new and interesting. It's like the shiny new toy. Um, they think that the path to spiritual enlightenment is the hope of humanity. So they'll follow the noble eightfold path. Uh, they'll try to connect to the universal consciousness through meditation, meditative practices. Um, the idea is that the path to eliminating suffering and pain is through connection to this universal consciousness. And again, back to the Matrix, right? Remember the, the little kid, that scene with the little kid who looks like a Buddhist monk or a Hindu priest? There is no spoon. <laughs> Realize the truth that there is no spoon. Uh, sometimes what sounds like nonsense is nonsense, okay? And a lot of this spiritual enlightenment talk, a lot of people are kind of drawn to it and pulled into it and believe it in our culture today because it sounds high, like a high-level thinking, sounds lofty ideas, but it's, it's soft, right? There's not a lot of hope there in just connecting to some universal conscious or spiritual force that's out there. Sometimes what's nonsense is actually nonsense. And you can think about it deeply, but come to the realistic conclusion that it's, it's actually nonsense, okay? <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense, and there's not a lot of power there, which we'll see in a bit. Okay, enough of those alternatives. They stink. Let's talk about the Christian vision of destiny, the Christian vision of where it's all headed and what we can really put our hope in. See this in the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21. First of all, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. This is a form of literature that we aren't very familiar with. Daniel is another form of this, and this is why when we try to interpret it, we get way bent out of whack uh, because we're just not familiar with this form of literature. 
I'm not going to go into it a ton, but uh, the Bible Project, I love their definition of it in their video on uh, the beginning of Revelation. Talk about apocalyptic literature as being symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective in history in light of its final outcome. Say it again. Symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective. So what's going on in heaven and God's space on history, what's happening now in light of its final outcomes. Okay. So it's trying to articulate or to give us perspective in the midst of what's happening now of how God sees the world and how God will interact with the world in the future, what the final outcome will be. So it's written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is a Roman province, who many of these churches were either facing the threat of persecution or being persecuted directly in the moment. And largely the message to them is, guys, Jesus is better. <laughs> the way of Jesus is better. Don't fall prey when you're arrested and the Romans are telling you, pledge your allegiance to Caesar and therefore denying the lordship of Christ, accept the lordship of Caesar. You would have to say Caesar is Lord or you're going to be put in prison or even executed. Caesar is Lord. Make that declaration. What John is writing to the church is to say is don't. Jesus is better. Don't pledge your allegiance to a lesser king than Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Nero is not Lord, ultimately over the universe. And what he's doing is saying, guys, don't give up on the way of Jesus in the midst of it. Don't, don't sacrifice the, the life of the cross, the cruciform life of death to self, of sacrifice and genuine love. Don't sacrifice that for the Roman picture of the good life, for a life lived in wealth and luxury and ease which you can have if you pledge allegiance to Caesar. Don't do that. Jesus is better, and it's worth it in the end, is what John is trying to say to the people. Talk about a message we need to hear today. But no, we're, we're too busy arguing about <laughs> the mark of the beast. Right? Like, that's the message. <laughs> that's the message. Don't pledge your allegiance to Caesar. Jesus is better. The end is better. This Christian vision of new creation and the destiny of God's people is so much better. So keep living the cruciform life. Keep walking the way of the cross. Even though it looks like death, even though it looks like because we're being persecuted to the church in this day, because they might kill you, remember Jesus. That Jesus conquered through death. Jesus conquered through the cross. That his act of love, of selfless giving of himself for others, taking the weight of, the, of God's, the sin of the people of God upon himself, even though it looked like there's no hope, he rose from the dead and God vindicated him. So follow that same path and don't give up. That's his message. That's his primary message through the book of Revelation. And at the end of it, he gives this picture of heaven, this vision of the new creation. And now, part of this is Christians, we have, to, we have to get our, reframe our mind around this. Notice what's happening here. It's creation being made new. It's not us, like, escaping to this ethereal space, okay? Like, that's not the heaven that John's describing here. It's creation being made new and us dwelling here with God. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he's talking about heaven here as like the skies or the stars, right? And there was no longer any sea. The sea is the place of chaos and evil and destruction and death. 
So he's just saying that's going to be done away with. <laughs> Remember, apocalyptic literature, visions, it's tough. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Like, new Jerusalem is like God's space, right? It's God's presence was in Jerusalem and in the, te- in the temple. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the first blessing, the primary blessing of the new creation life. It's God himself. God will be with us. Right now we experience the presence of God in part, then we will experience it in full. The already but not yet, theologians call it. We experience it now already, but not yet in full. And we will experience it in full in the new creation. And Christians, we have to get our mind on this and our eyes on this, that the primary blessing of new creation, of heaven, of being in God's space, is not that we will have our mansion, as that passage in John 14 has been misinterpreted. That is not the blessing. The blessing isn't the big, big table with lots and lots of food or the big yard where we can play football, okay? Like, that's cool. But that's not the primary blessing. Let's not set our eyes on that. Set our eyes on God. God is the blessing. Being with him in the fullness of his presence, seeing his face, the fullness of his glory, nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to that. I don't care how big the mansion is, it's nothing compared to God. Right? We want God. He's the goal, to be with him. He, and this is the second blessing. In God's space, there isn't evil. <laughs> In God's space, the curse is not there. There's no crying, tears, death, sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What a picture, Christians, we need to get our eyes on to live as people of hope. Because right now, there's a lot of tears. Right now, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of mourning and crying and pain. Macro scale, when you look at the world, there's a lot of sin when you look at your heart, when you look at your life around you. There's a lot of disunity and dysfunction and chaos. But this is the Christian hope. Encounter the secular utopia or dystopia or spiritual enlightenment. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Our hope is not in our ability to accomplish it and make it right. And thank God for that. Our hope is not in our politicians to figure it out. Our hope is in Jesus. And now we have the purpose of working towards this end of being salt and light in the world and promoting kingdom values and living in kingdom values. We have meaning. We have purpose. We don't just sit and, oh, Lord, we can't do anything until that time comes. No, we have meaning in now, as we talked about that a few weeks, or the last couple of weeks. But our hope is not ultimately in our ability to accomplish it. It is in God, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That when he returns... He'll make all things new. And this is real hope, as we're going to see. I'm getting ahead of myself. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Gosh, we need to hear that. Christians, when you are anxious, worried, discouraged, distressed, 
hear the words from the throne of God, I am making everything new. He is doing this. We can trust it. And why can we trust it? He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So what God says he will do, he will do. He said, it is done. He's harkening us back to the cross, reminding us, remember, Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished. Already, but not yet. In full. Why can we have this hope and this abiding trust, this assurance that what God says he will do in making all things new that he will actually do? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) So this isn't some lofty pipe dream. This isn't some, well, we hope we'll reach enlightenment. And somehow through enlightenment that all the suffering and pain, even the suffering and pain that wasn't caused by us, that's just function, a function of the fallen world that we live in, will be done away with. We have real hope because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus has said, it is finished. And so we can trust that he has conquered sin, death, and the curse. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Our trust is not in ourselves. It's in the Alpha and Omega. Yahweh. I am. The one who was and is and is to come. The beginning and the end. Then he says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This water of life, (laughs) symbolizing eternal life, life everlasting, resurrection life in Jesus, is a free gift in him. That God will give water without cost. It's free. You don't earn it. It's a free gift of God's grace, the salvation when we put our faith and trust in him to receive salvation. And as a part of this salvation, those who are victorious, this is a key theme through Revelation, it's those who don't bow to Caesar, those who follow the way of Jesus, who follow the cruciform life in the face of the good life that the world says is a life of luxury, free of pain and suffering. No. Those who are victorious, those who overcome, will inherit the new creation. Notice in verse 8, when he counters those who are victorious, those who overcome, are the cowardly. The cowardly. Those who give up the cruciform life. Those who say, no, 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 it's not death to self. I can actually have it all. Maybe I don't need to die to myself, and I can still have this inheritance, this new creation with God. Maybe I can bow the knee to Caesar and to Jesus at the same time. Nope. That's not being victorious. That's the cowardly way out. And it doesn't work. (laughs) You won't inherit the kingdom of God. Cowardly. First, verse 7, I didn't finish it. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. Christian, this is your inheritance that God will give you. It's the new creation. You don't have to be ashamed of that. It's what God will give you. And we can rest in that. And we know he will do it. And we will rule creation fully under his authority as the in, was intended in Eden. As stewards. Romans 8 talks about it as well, but I'm not going to have time to get there. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. 
already, but not yet. We will fully experience God being our God and us being his children. We won't have the lies and the temptation of the enemy that tries to deceive us and tell us that that's not true. We'll believe it and we'll live like it. But, and this, this is the hard part, this is the part that, for many, makes the irresistible gospel look very resistible. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Remember, this is, remember, this is apocalyptic li literature. It's a vision of the second death. Say this with heaviness. But this is what Scripture teaches. That this inheritance, that this destiny is for the people of God. And so when God does away with evil, he will also do away with those who do evil. For those who aren't, don't have the righteousness found in Christ. Because we all do evil, right? But remember the... the Sermon on morality, we talked about God's response to our unrighteousness. He has made us righteous in Christ, in the blood of Christ, which we're going to celebrate in communion in a moment here. And so before God, we stand holy and justified. But for those who are not in Christ, who don't have the righteousness of Christ as their cover, their destiny is not in the new creation. Because when God does away with evil, he will act justly. But remember, <laughs> to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Eternal life is free. It's a free gift of salvation in Jesus when we put our faith and trust in him. This is what makes the gospel so beautiful. We don't earn it. We don't have to be good enough. It's not this balancing act of, I don't know if my righteous deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Nobody's does. But God gives us water of life and eternal life in Jesus. It's a free gift. And on that note of a gift and what so many stumble upon with this, that God is just as well. And that God does not owe us eternal life. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not owed. God doesn't owe us life tomorrow, right now. God doesn't owe us the moments that we're sharing together here. God owes you nothing. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So many of our culture have been entitled to eternal life. You're not. But to those whom God gives it, there's an inheritance in the new creation. And so... If you're not in Christ, put your faith and trust in him and receive that water of life. If you're thirsty, experience the eternal life, the resurrection life in Jesus now. It's a free gift of salvation. And this is the inheritance that awaits those who are in Christ. There's an urgency to this. If you're not a Christian, there's urgency to it. We don't know when Jesus will return and when we will experience this new creation. So don't wait. Christian, there's an urgency to sharing your faith. We want. We want those. We want you to experience this kingdom. We want you to experience the new creation with God. 
Fast forward to Revelation 22, a band you guys can set up here. It says, and the angel showed me, this is the return to Eden, Eden 2.0. It's going to be better than Eden, without the potential for sin, without the potential for evil. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal. Remember, these are images, harking us back to Eden, to the Old Testament, to the space, presence of God. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, this river flowing out of the temple is Ezekiel's vision. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Think Eden again. Now it's available. It's available to us. It wasn't available in Eden. Now it is available. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The curse that came as the result of sin brought death and destruction into the world. We were all born with original sin. Mm. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll have access, full access to God. They will see his face. It's like Moses, who could only see the back of God, whatever that means. He didn't see the fullness of God's glory. We will see the fullness of God's glory in the new creation and be in complete awe of him. <laughs> and his name will be on their foreheads. We will be the people of God fully. We will not take the name of the Lord God in vain, but we will fully represent him, being his people, his children. There will be no more night. Night, again, is darkness, evil, symbol of lies and deception. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. God will be our light. Truth, goodness, it's in him. And they will reign forever and ever. <laughs> People of God, the original intent of Eden, that humanity would reign over creation under the authority of God, perfectly following his law, his rule, his way. We will reign in the new creation as the people of God forever and ever. Beautiful. What a beautiful picture. Christian, with this hope, live in the hope of the gospel. Don't put your hope in other stuff. Live in the hope of the gospel. Be hopeful people. Lord, help us to be hopeful in the midst of uncertainty and chaos, sadness, destruction, evil. Lord, we have hope. Our hope is not in other people. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in you. It's only in you, Jesus. So Lord, would you return soon that we can experience the fullness of your glory, the fullness of your presence, and be with you. And this picture realized. Give us eyes to see this in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain. Lord, in the midst of our uncertainty and doubt and worry and anxiousness, give us a picture of this, that this is the destiny of your people, that, Lord, one day you will make all things new. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So again, I just want to drive this point home that our hope is not in just some lofty vision. It's not in some blind hope. We have assurance of it, that this is real, that this is true. 
because Jesus has died on the cross, because Jesus has risen from the dead. And so, we should not fear to follow that same path. And so, we should not fear to bow our knee only to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Where the world says the path to abundant life is self-gratification, we say it's the path of Jesus, the way of love, the way of giving up ourselves, it's the way of death to self. And we should not fear to do so because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus has promised that he will return and take us with him to be where he is. And so we can live as people of hope, who have hope in the gospel because of what Jesus has done. John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's just told his disciples he's leaving and they can't come with him yet. <laughs> basically. He's about to go to the cross. Can you imagine the troubled heart that the disciples had when Jesus was saying this? They spent three years following him. He's about to go to the cross and die, and they're thinking, our Messiah is dead. We put all of our hope in this guy. We thought he was the one. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is going to happen. And in that darkness, in that time, they would be tempted to despair and say, this Jesus guy was false. He's fake. But before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he basically says, you trust God, trust me too. Believe and trust the same word. He says, trust me. Even though all of this is going to happen, trust me. Even though it may look like Rome won, he's going to rise. <laughs> he's going to rise from the dead. But in the moment of the cross, it took some real faith to believe that Jesus, Jesus was going to win. That victory comes by death to self. This word for troubled means like shaking up. So think of a lake, a shallow lake, whatever. After a storm and all the dirt and grime at the bottom is all stirred up. That's the picture of many of our hearts in our inner life right now. It's anxious. It's a good picture of anxiety, right? Troubled. It's worried. Jesus says, even in the midst of one of the darkest hours in human history when he's crucified and put on the cross, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Christian. I don't know what's going on out in the world. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in your immediate circumstances. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Your hope is not in our politicians, our political parties. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in another government. Our hope is not in us. It's ultimately in Jesus. Jesus is going to say in the few verses following, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back and get you so that you can be with me where I am. That's our hope, is being with Jesus. Don't put your hope don't put your hope in a cheap substitute. 
Put your hope in Jesus and in him alone. Tim Keller, before he died of pancreatic cancer, which is a painful, difficult way to go, he said the gospel means that everything is going to be all right in the end. <laughs> Christian, you have hope. <laughs> no matter how dark it is, gospel means that everything is going to be all right in the end. So one of the verses that has just captivated me on our hope is Romans 15, 13. I just want to invite you to sit on this for a moment. Every time I read this, something new <laughs> comes out. And it's so beautiful. May the God of hope, God is a God of hope. God is the one in whom our, horse, our hope is sourced. It's in him. May the God of hope fill you. May God fill you with hope. Hope isn't found in some other place. It's not found in yourself. It's not found in politics. It's not found in some spiritual enlightenment. Hope is found in God because he is the God of hope. May he fill you. This is my prayer for you, church, with all joy and peace. Joy and peace. May you experience those things. Later, he's going to call God the God of peace. <laughs> as you trust in him, as you have faith in him, same word, have faith in Jesus, have trust in Jesus, that even when it doesn't seem like his way is the right way, even when it seems like my life would be better if I bowed the knee to Caesar, trust him, trust him, so that, the result is that you may overflow with hope, not just a little bit of hope. When the world is in despair and anxiety is running wild, you can have hope, Christian. All this by the power of the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. May the Spirit produce this in you. Let's just sit for a moment, read this, reflect on it, pray. Make this your prayer. And then we'll sing one more song to close.